Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hey, I have really big news. As you know, right now, tickets are on sale for Level Up Your Listing Summit. This is the all-women's short-term rental summit that Tatiana, Taylor, Tate, and I are planning. It is February 27th, 28th, and March 1st in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we just sold out of our first round of early bird tickets. But because it is Thanksgiving week and we know Black Friday is in a couple days, Tatiana and I decided to extend this pricing After Friday, this is gone. This is the lowest price you are ever going to see for the summit. There are no discounts in the future, so don't wait around hoping that there will be one. This is it. If you have any questions about the summit, know that you can always reach out to myself or Tatiana or check out the summit website page below. I will link it in the show notes and you can purchase your tickets there. Hope to see you there. And welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and I am having Ryan Bakey back on the show. He is the first guest ever to have a two-time appearance, and he earned it because the last episode we did with him had such good feedback. I still get messages all the time about that episode. You guys absolutely loved it. So I wanted to have Ryan back on today. He's our go-to CPA here, and we want to have him talk about some year-end tax strategies and what you can do in these last few weeks of 2022. So Ryan, thank you for coming back and just grace us with your with your wisdom here and help us save money on taxes. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me back today. So one of the common things that we look at for clients towards the year-end is where are they at this year in their investing journey compared to where they think they will be next year? So, for example, if you're in a super high tax bracket, like let's say you made a lot of money this year, well, one of the things you might want to consider doing is maybe prepaying some of your future expenses for next year. So, if I'm looking at, so maybe I have some deferred maintenance or, hey, I know I have these routine expenses, maybe January, February, March. If you have these expenses that you know you're going to have, you can actually prepay those now and get the tax deduction now rather than paying for them next year and waiting an entire year to get your deduction for those expenses. Okay. Um, in my case, on the other side, go, go, ahead, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, so in my case, you know, um, the property that we own is in a condo complex and mm-hmm. our HOA passed a special assessment for next year. So we're going to have some right. bigger costs with that. I think it's like a six K special assessment. So would that be wise for me to pay that off this year if I can? Yeah, so depending on when the assessment comes due, if it's going to be 6K, you could look at paying paying it this year and getting the expense this year or paying it next year. That, to me, would look at where your tax bracket, where, where it is this year versus where you think it would be next year. So if I think I'm going to be a higher earner next year, which, fingers crossed, everyone listening... You want to pay be, it next year. Oh, then I want to wait till next year. Okay, yes. okay. 
Okay, I'm not paying mm-hmm. it this year then. All right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that can wait till 2023. Um, all mm-hmm. right. Okay, and then how how would somebody know if they're going to be a higher earner next year? Like, I'm hoping we all are because we're all trying to grow and improve. But what would tell you? Yeah. Like maybe yeah, so you're going to make less. You know. Yeah, it'd be really easy. So you're going to total up all your total income streams, your, and this will be your net income stream. So maybe I'm a W-2 or maybe I have a little side hustle. Add up those income streams, and then I'm going to also take the net income that I'm making on my rental properties or my co-hosting. Add those all up, and I'm going to get one lump sum. And you know, let's say, for example, I'm making $150,000. You can Google 2022 tax brackets, see where your tax rate is in 2022, and then Google 2023 tax rates and see where your tax bracket is going to be in 2023 and then make that comparison. Mm, okay. If somebody mm. is planning on buying a property next year, what would that, how would that affect their strategy? Because they can take a huge loss next year. Yeah. So would that change any of their behavior in the next few weeks rounding out 2022? Yeah, if I knew that I was planning on buying some properties or some assets next year, I know that my tax bracket is going to be artificially lower next year. Okay. Uh, whereas this year, if I haven't bought anything, or maybe I'm still, maybe I did buy some stuff, but I'm still at a higher bracket, I would want to look into prepaying some of those future expenses in this year before the mm. year's over. So, what other tips do you have, you know, for planning? What do we have? Five, six weeks left of the year. What else mm. can people do? Anything regarding. Um, bookkeeping or any sort of strategies that's going to make their tax strategy easier this year? Yeah, I think you hit it. There's bookkeeping is having those accurate books and records. Uh, st- your your journey for getting your taxes prepared in April begins right now. You know, you can work on getting your, your books cleaned up, making sure that everything's signed together, looking at your bank statements, making sure that you have all your expenses accounted for. So Natalie, I run three different businesses and it's, it's almost like I can deduct pretty much everything that I ever spend. It's just like, which business do I want to deduct it in? Okay. But I have a struggle of, okay, this credit card is linked to this business and this credit card is linked to that business. And you want to really go, and I'm a CPA doing that, right? Like, and I'm tempted to hire out my own bookkeeping just because <laughs> it is honestly, absolutely a mess. I'd rather have somebody else do it. Um, but the process for tax, getting your tax prepared starts now. Do not wait until... February, March of next year, when you're under the gun and you have to go file to start getting all your books and records together, it starts right now. Um, that's honestly one of the most prospective ways to save money on taxes. And sort of the exercise that I do when I'm looking at clients' tax returns is, oh, hey, you have a condo, but I don't see any HOA fees here. Or you have, you know, you're in a townhome, I don't see any HOA fees. Or where's where's some of your fees for uh, spoiled linens or supplies or things of that nature? And so that's where it's being an investor and being a real estate CPA, I can see those things that guests, or I'm sorry, not guests, um, clients are, are missing in their financial statements. I'm going to ask you a question now that uh, is maybe illegal. So if we need to cut this out. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. No, I just, here's here's what I'm wondering. So uh, I, I do a lot of co-hosting and I purchase mm-hmm. all of the supplies and stuff for the owners that I manage for. So that goes onto my credit card, and I do that intentionally because I want the cash back and the points and everything. Those owners do reimburse me for these individual mm-hmm. items. So since I'm the one who has the receipts and the credit card statements, am I able to deduct those purchases or no because they end up reimbursing me and 
you know, I don't know. What am they I? Would, they would, they would, they would essentially cancel out. So they would cancel out. Okay. You would, you would, uh, it'd be like a negative effect. So you would pick up the money that they reimbursed you as income. And then you would have the money that you spent as expenses and they would just, they would negate each other. But, uh, that's good that you bring it up is the reporting because if you're co-hosting for people, odds are you might have their, their property under your Airbnb account. Mm-hmm. So when you get your 1099 from Airbnb or PayPal or wherever, your income is going to include all that income for that, that account potentially. And so Airbnb now has, I believe they have the option to per property, you're able to figure out who's the taxpayer. And you just going to want to make sure because let's say I'm, let's say I have three properties. I manage three others. Well, I might get a statement that says I made a hundred thousand dollars or possible six, but if I'm only managing three of them, I need to make sure that I don't include that as my income. So you have to make sure that each property is specifically segmented where that money is going, what percentage, so that when Airbnb or Verbo or whoever issues out their tax documents, it's going to the right place. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, what else? Oh, okay. Here's something that I've been wanting to ask you for a while. You already touched on this for a little bit, but I do see a lot of CPAs will post stuff that says your tax strategy doesn't start February, March. You already said this. Your tax strategy starts today. Can you explain like what that actually means? We talked about bookkeeping, Mm -hmm. but what else can people do when they're like planning the year ahead to start their tax strategy now? Yeah. So when you prepare your 2022 taxes in April of 2023, your tax return is just a reflection, a snapshot of what you did in the year before. And so only those things that are in that snapshot are actually going to help or hurt you when it comes to filing your tax return. So only things between January 1st and December 31st, things and items that you do in that time period are going to help or hurt you. So if you're waiting until the end of the year to scramble to do some planning or um, what most people do is they wait until the year's over to start planning and talking with a CPA. You're already out of luck because the year's already over. There's nothing that you can, there's very little things that you can do after the year's over to actually help your situation. Okay. So- and to, to take it a step further, uh, you know, there's a, there's a term called Monday morning quarterbacking. Mm-hmm. It's used in the NFL to explain whenever one of the guys get in on Monday, they're like, Hey, this is what we should have done on Sunday. That's what a lot of people, oh, we should have done this, we should have done that. That's how a lot of people treat taxes. Their accountant says, oh, well, if you would have just done this or you should have done this and all these things that I should have done, it's like, great, thanks. Where were you five months ago when I when I needed that advice? And so if we can plan ahead through the year and we still have five weeks or so to plan uh, for our taxes so that when we go to file our tax return, there's no surprises. Okay, so what would you recommend for someone... Uh... I guess I'm going to ask for some personal tax advice right now. I'm going to use this hour (laughs) for myself, selfishly. Um, Okay, so my husband is a teacher. Free consulting hours. Yeah, free consulting. So my husband is a teacher, W-2. I am self-employed, and then we own a property and co-host some other listings. So what can we do? I think a lot of my listeners are in the same situation. There's one partner, W-2, and then one is self-employed taking, running the short-term rental business. What are some strategies, again, with the last five weeks of the year that we can use to put some money into some sort of retirement account or, or move something from here and here? What do you recommend, mm-hmm. you know, for someone like me? Yeah, so one thing you want to keep in mind is if you're 1099 and you're self-employed, you are required or you should be making 
or at least setting aside money for those estimated taxes. Mm-hmm. So and a, and a general ballpark rule of thumb is if you're able to set 30% of your earnings aside for taxes, you'll be in good shape. Uh, but you had mentioned too, there is the retirement account options. So as a self-employed person, there's retirement accounts that you can set up for your self-employed business. So the best one that that is out there, and I just actually just yesterday, I released a podcast on it, is going to be the solo 401k. Okay. So with the solo 401k, you're able to create your own retirement plan for your business, and you're able to get deductions for the amount of money that you contribute to that. And you're able to contribute to a retirement account and get those tax deductions. It'll allow you to min- minimize your tax liability. Okay. So what is this one? The sole 401k? So it's called a solo 401k. Solo 401k. Okay. Yeah. And is that like a new account or that's just something that I have never heard of? <laughs> uh, so good point. So the reason why nobody ever hears about it is because financial advisors don't make money because those accounts are administrated by you, not uh-huh. a financial advisor. So, okay. Yeah. And it's, it's a real disservice in the industry because the people need those types of, they, people need to hear that they can be their own boss and have their own retirement account, but the financial industry is not telling them that. So, but you're able to set up your own 401k, you're able to contribute just like you were, if you were an employee, but more so you're able to get business deductions for your contribution. So let's just use my example. I'm able to contribute the 20500 to a 401k just like any other employee can, but I'm also able to match a percentage of my salary. And I'm actually able to do 25% of whatever I pay myself as a W-2. Wow. And I get that as a business deduction. So I, this year, I contributed my 20500 as an employee. I got a deduction for that. And then I'm able to do 25% of whatever I pay myself. So let's say I pay myself $100,000 to work in my business. Okay. Well, now I'm going to be able to do a $25,000 deduction against my income. And so this year I was able to shelter, I stashed away $45,000 into a retirement account that I own. That is my own yeah. retirement account. Yeah. And in doing that, you're also getting tax benefits back. So you're yeah. saving your own money for your future at a huge price cut today. And you're getting the deduction for it, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. so is the solo 401k, this is different from a SEP IRA. I've been told to yes. put money into a SEP IRA since I'm self-employed. Should I keep doing that or <laughs> should I switch? So over? They're, they're, they're similar. They're, they're very similar, but the, the SEP IRAs are going to be a little bit more uh, easier to set up and more minimal cost. My solo 401k, though, was was still very cheap. I mean, it probably cost me $100 to implement it. Okay. Um, compared to a SEP IRA, maybe 25 or 50 bucks. But that's nothing in the grand scheme of me being able to put 45 grand into this account. Um, the reason why I like the solo 401k more is there's just so much more flexibility that you can do with the account as compared to the SEP IRA. So number one, you can actually put more money into the solo 401k because for the SEP IRA, you can only do the business contributions. Mm. Whereas a solo 401k, you can do the business and the employee contributions. Oh, okay. And and furthermore, an IRA, whenever you have money in an IRA, you're never able to borrow against the IRA. A 401k, you're always able to borrow against a 401k. So uh, God forbid something happens and you need that money, you can borrow against a 401k plan, but you cannot borrow against an IRA. Wow. Another reason why we like the solo 401k more than the SEP, the SEP IRA and then um, lastly, if you get into uh, self-directing your retirement accounts, which I have podcasts on also, 
the solo 401k is more advantageous to own a real estate in your retirement account than a SEP IRA would be. Are there any different tax benefits to these? Like, do you, can you deduct more? They're, sim- they're very similar. Very similar. Uh, it's just, you can get more in the solo 401k. Okay. Okay. So the solo 401k really only works though, if you pay yourself out as a self-employed person, you're paying yourself out a full-time salary. So somebody who's just, you know, hosting is kind of a side hustle for them or whatever. And they're not like, no, not necessarily. So like, let's say I made 10 or 15 grand as a co-host. Well, I can, I can still do my 25%. uh, Okay. 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 Um, All right. So what else is there um, leading up to the last, you know, bit of 2022? I'm sure you would have told people to start their tax planning sooner for this year. But is there anything else that in the last few weeks people can kind of squeeze in there? Any final purchases or anything to help with those deductions? Yeah. So one of the things that is actually very beneficial this year is to do those Roth IRA conversions or Roth conversions. So then the reason why is remember when we contribute money to a regular 401k, we get a tax deduction when we put it in. So let's say I'm in a 30% bracket and I contribute $10,000, I'm going to get a $3,000 deduction. Well, with a Roth account, you actually don't get the deduction when you put the money in, but it grows completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And so we want to get as much assets as we can in those Roth retirement accounts. Well, with this year being how the stock market has kind of come down a little bit, some people are losing 15, 20% in their accounts. It's a great way, it's a great year to look into Roth conversions because you're converting your account balance at a lower uh, lower amount than if you were to convert it before. So I put 10 grand in a traditional account and now it's worth seven. If I convert it at seven, I pay taxes on seven rather than 10. Mm, okay. But I still have the same amount of stock. I still have the same amount of shares in the stock. It's just not worth as much because of what the market is doing so literally just by it's the same amount of money but just by like moving it so it's a conversion you can you can deduct more yeah and i have a more detailed podcast on this but the Roth conversions this year are going to save people so much money especially as if they're in a lower taxable income this year and they're able to convert some money over to Roth. that's what a lot of our clients are able to do if they're doing uh, the cost segregation studies on their rentals, they're able to lower their tax rate and therefore do Roth conversions at lower tax rates and save a boatload of money. Okay. Uh, another thing I'm wondering right now, for somebody who is interested in buying a property next year, it's mm. obviously easier to get approved for a loan if you can report a higher income, right? So where do you... Is there a certain point where you would draw the line at trying to max out your deductions? Like maybe for certain people, if they want to be approved at a higher amount next year, it would be a disservice to just, you know, throw everything into these accounts and deduct what they can. Where would you kind of draw that line? Yeah. um, So remember, some of the deductions that you might have, a lender might look at and say, hey, that, that is a deduction, but we'll add that back. And oftentimes, like, okay. retirement is just is that. Like, you know, I might contribute 50 grand to retirement, but a bank's going to say, well, you know, it's not that he had 50 grand in business expenses. He's just stashing this way of money towards retirement. So it's knowing which deductions that the banks will actually add back. Okay. Which is going to be, like, your depreciation that we talked about in the last podcast okay. and and your retirement account contributions. Oftentimes, they might add those back. Um but what I wanted to get there is you said 
is there a sweet spot? And the sweet spot is really going to be what are your DTI limits? So most banks don't want to see your DTI, your debt to income, you know, your W-2 income compared to how much they'll loan. And typically, typically, unfortunately, some banks sometimes will give you 5x of your income. So if I made $100,000 a year, a bank will say, okay, we'll let this, let this gentleman borrow up to 5x his W-2 salary. When your DT, if you think that your DTI might get uh, tripped up or might be too low, well, that would be a great year to show a lot of income so you can increase your income so then your DTI is lower. Okay. Yes. So if you're thinking you're going to buy a million dollar property, it would be better to show that you made 200,000 this year. So when they find exit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it would really be on someone. You have to kind of put in the work to see what sort of what's how much you want to spend on a property next year, what your budget is, and then almost like work backwards, like how much. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, one other thing that I have been meaning to ask you for a while now, and this might be one of my last questions, unless we go down another rabbit hole, but I purchased property last year and was able to take out a ton of deductions because of all the renovations and everything. I didn't have to pay any taxes last year. We actually got a tax return because of what a huge loss we reported on that. I didn't buy any property this year. Am I still able, I know that there's depreciation and some ongoing stuff, but how is that property that I bought last year going to be able to serve me in my tax, in my tax planning this year? Well, serve or disservice you, right? Because if you have, you took all your expenses when you got the property up and running, but now you're not having as much expenses and all, and now you have an entire year of it profiting and Mm -hmm. being cash flow. So you're going to show some income from that property. Mm -hmm. And so that income, whatever is left over after all your expenses are paid, it's going to add to your total net income that we talked about earlier with the, you know, your W-2, a 1099, and then your rental property. So you're going to want to account for that. And what you're able to do is, let's say I'm going to make $10,000 from my rental property. Well, one of the things you can do is check your last year's tax return to see how much depreciation that you'll have that will carry forward. So maybe I maybe I'm making ten grand on my rental property, but I have six thousand dollars of depreciation that's carrying forward. I'm only going to pay taxes on four grand, not the ten grand that I actually made. Okay, and that depreciation does that get recalculated every year, or because you said reference last year's, would that change based yeah. on inflation or anything like that, or that's like something standard? It's the same. It'll be the same fixed amount. Okay. So. If you look at your tax return, there should be a spot that'll say next year's depreciation. Mm. And that'll be the number that you're going to use to calculate out what what it is that you can make without having to really pay any taxes. So uh, when when I see real estate investors who say like real investing in real estate is how I'm able to pay nothing in taxes, is that because they are actively investing every single year? Like since I didn't yeah. buy anything this year, I basically don't benefit from what I got last year. Correct. Okay. All right. I have five weeks left. Maybe I can close on something by the, by the end of the year. Um, but this is, this is really helpful. So at what point for, for, you know, 2022 is wrapping up, but somebody who wants to start off January 1st, 2023 on the right foot, what are some of the first steps that they could take to really do their tax planning for? So in April, 2024, it's not scary. And they've already been planning their 2023 as best as they can. Yeah, it all starts with outlining what you think your income is going to be that year. You know, 
we don't all have we don't have crystal balls. Otherwise, we would be in different lines of work. But hey, I think I'm going to make this much a year of my salary, or we have this property. I think this is how much it's going to make. And once you figure out what your total income is and what your tax bracket is, you're going to be able to make some decisions on those numbers. And then as the year goes on, maybe those numbers change. Maybe you make a little bit more money or a little bit less, but you're able to kind of pilot the ship after you've outlined your initial plan. How I just because I think that the short term rental industry is so can fluctuate so much. How are how do you expect clients to like really estimate their earnings? Um, you know, if somebody has a consistent W two job, it's much easier to do. But somebody who's totally self employed and just is co hosting or arbitrage or or hosting, mm-hmm. how do you even estimate it when there's so many market fluctuations and tourism dips and Airbnb changes up their algorithm and you don't get booked for a month? Yeah. You know, are there good ways that you have to kind of estimate that? So like at my firm, we have proprietary software that will calculate their tax obligation based on how much money they make. But there's plenty of free resources online at H&R Block or TurboTax that if you punch in your income and if you're married or single and what do you have going on, they'll get you pretty close as to what you can expect to owe. Okay. And then based mm-hmm. on those numbers, that's how you would decide if you should um, like it. What earning would you say that somebody should be actively trying to purchase a property every year? Where does it make sense to where it's not going to put them under, but they're getting a lot of those tax saving benefits? Uh, for me, that's going to be probably the either the twenty twenty. I'm sorry, the twenty twenty two or the twenty four percent tax bracket. Okay. So for twenty twenty three, I'm I'm googling it right now. Pull it up. Uh, but the for a let's see for a. The 24% bracket for a single person, that is, for 2023, that would be $95,000 of income. So a, a single, single person. person making $95,000 should absolutely invest in property next year. Yeah. What about for married sense, couples? Uh, so married couples, you're looking at one ninety. Okay. to be in that 24% tax bracket. And yeah. is there... Like any sort of recommendation, like would, um, I don't know, some one bedroom shack in Alabama that you pay 100000 for, would that cut it? Or do you need some more expensive investments to really take advantage of that? Yeah, so the, the tax savings are going to be mostly based on the purchase price of the property. Okay. Um, so any amount of purchase will help you. It's just more purchase price will help you more. Okay. Um, typically, we're seeing... As a general ballpark, um, general kind of rule of thumb, whatever your purchase price is, you could expect to get six to seven percent back in the form of tax savings. Okay, and then and how like do we've been six to seven percent back on the purchase price? And then how do renovation costs factor into this? If someone strategically bought something two hundred k under asking because they want to put money into fixing it up themselves, are you able to deduct any of those renovations? So I there's a podcast that I did a little while ago that talks about the timing of when you actually do your renovations and your repairs. Okay. And you're able to strategically time your repairs versus some of your cosmetic stuff in order to uh, be maximum tax efficient. Uh, to kind of sum it up, all the costs that you incur before, I'm sorry, all the costs that you incur when you buy the property and when it goes live, you don't get the tax benefit benefit of those right away, you have to depreciate them over time versus the expenses that you have once the property is live and in service, 
you're, you can qualify to immediately deduct those or expense those. And so the way that strategy works is, hey, get buy your property. Let's say I have a $30,000 budget for renovations and, and startup costs. Well, maybe 20000 of those expenses I'm going to do just, just to get the property ready to go and in service. And then I can come in later for the other 10000 Maybe that's a bunch of furniture and that's decor and that's all the stuff that's going to go in the bedrooms. If I can do that after the property has been placed in the service, then I can expense those items immediately rather than having to depreciate them. Okay. So there is some strategic timing there. How is someone yes. supposed to stay on top of this? So if you're like 2023 yeah. starts, I'm going to buy my property, but I need to get it at the right time regarding interest rates. And then I have to renovate it at the right time to take the most. Is it just like, you just got to live your life and then like at a certain point and then just deduct what you can? Like, how does someone even do this? <laughs> I think somebody navigating this journey just really has to there's tons of information. There's tons of people out there that do what we do. It's taking what applies to you the most and using that in your business and rental real estate. So you're going to get a lot of things thrown at you, but all we're saying is just take bits and pieces here and see what applies to you. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as me, you know, like I'm looking to roll out some uh, short course format for people to really understand all this stuff. Okay. And it's looks something like, Hey, you know, this course, you know, we think this course can save you $10,000 this year here's the cost and it's a sort of a self-study kind of go through a lot. I talk a lot slower on the course than I do here, <laughs> but hopefully, you know, my goal is to provide a lot of conversation to the area because for, for a lot of times only richer and wealthy people are able to afford tax advisors. And I really want to bring, uh, of course, all my podcasts are free. You can listen to my podcast, but if you want it in a discrete format, you could check out something like a course that I'll have in January. Let me know when that officially launches. Um, I, of course, want to promote that and share it here. And I hope people sign up. Um, I think especially with it launching in January, like we talked about, that's just the perfect time for people to educate themselves early in the year and plan out their tax strategy for the rest of the year. Um, Ryan, are there any final parting things you want to leave us with? Uh, the year's almost up. Any final things people can do? Yeah. Or maybe even for next year? What's like your last parting thought here? Don't stop running analysis on deals. So, I mean, we've, you know, between me and my group and some of the stuff that I've been able to do, a lot of the properties in the last two, three months, we haven't had any competition. Nobody's putting offers because everybody's scared. Everybody's, oh, the interest rates are double what they were last year. And, and sure they are, but if anything, you should still be running deals. Pencil in deals with, with conservative numbers, even if you're just getting the exercise of doing it because... If you get that process down of being able to quickly calculate if something's going to make money within 10 minutes, then once the interest rates do come back down or you have more purchasing power, you're going to be able to jump on that. But if you are not running deals or at least calculating it, you're sitting on the sidelines and you're not in the game. I'm so happy you said that. And I saw this post like a couple weeks ago. It actually may have been you that reposted this, but it said something like, Okay, interest rates are 7%. If you buy right now and in a year they go down, you refinance. If you buy right now and in a year they go up, you're going to be happy you bought when you did. And if you buy right now and in a year they're the same, okay, yeah. then you got in early. That's, that is true as long as you have a good equity position. Okay, meaning? Right, so, so like I wouldn't want to, if I bought something and let's say, you know, let's say the market goes down 10 or 20%, 
it's going to be a lot harder for me to get out of that deal if I have to sell it because somebody has to come in and buy it at a higher interest rate, potentially. Okay. As a, still run your numbers and do that deal if it will cash flow properly. Okay. Okay. But just 7% interest rate is not a reason to sit out of the market. Just keep running those deals. And I think what yes. you touched on too, that it's a, it's a muscle. Like you want to keep practicing because yeah. even if right now it ends up not being the right time for you, when time comes, you want to know what you're doing so you can jump in. Um, that, that's great advice. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Thank you so much, Ryan. Um, again, I will link how to be in touch with you. Thank you for being the first ever guest to make a second appearance. It's well-deserved. It went to you because people loved the first episode we did together. So thank you again. And you. Um, yeah, can't wait for your course to come out. Have a happy rest of your year. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? Oh, this is a tough one for me. But this week, I am the Airbnb hole. Oh, I I let one of my guests down. And I'm going to let you guys weigh in here. I feel so bad about it. But then I keep trying to think if another host came to me and told me that this happened, I feel like I would tell them like, you're fine, you did nothing wrong. But it's always harder when you're the one that's experiencing this. So you guys weigh in, send me a message after you listen to this and tell me how bad this screw up is. I feel horrible about it. So I had a guest check out Sunday morning and she texted me, she checked out early and she texted me in the morning, like 8am that she realized she forgot her Invisalign and some skincare products and asked if we could ship them back to her. I told her, yes, we charge $10 handling plus whatever the shipping fees are. She immediately agreed, no problems. And I told her we'd have to ship it out the next day because it was a Sunday, so post office closed. She was super kind, super understanding about it. So notify our cleaners. And I guess that our cleaning team ended up sending someone new who's on their crew. And in the miscommunication, that new person was not told about this. And I guess they got in there and ended up throwing everything out. They just saw used products and had a job to do to clean the listing, threw it all out. So I didn't even know because I figured they weren't going to ship it on Sunday. It wasn't until Monday when I said, hey, can I get the tracking number and receipt so I can get this guest to reimburse? And that is when my cleaners told me, oh, shit, she threw this stuff out. Oh, freaking stabbed to the chest. I swear it was like soul crushing when I read that. I felt so bad. And I'm like, great. Now I have to text this guest who's expecting her Invisalign and skincare to be shipped back to her. And I told her we would do it. No problem. She agreed to the price of shipping and everything. Now I have to tell her it's in the trash. I felt so bad. She was really, really kind about it. And I just texted her and I said, hey, I am so sorry to have to tell you this. But there was a miscommunication with our cleaning team. Long story short, your items ended up getting thrown out. I am so sorry. I feel absolutely horrible. She was really nice about it. And she said, no, it's totally my fault. I shouldn't have left the things there in the first place. And uh, there was part of me that wanted to offer her like a discount on the next day or something like that. But then I'm telling myself at the same time, Ultimately, we are not responsible for things that are left after checkout time, and we clearly state that. It is in our house rules. I'm glad that we have that. Even though she was understanding, I still 
she could have very easily thrown a fit. And at least we are protected in that sense. Here's a lesson if you don't have anything in your house rules about how you are not responsible for guest items that are left behind. Go ahead and add that in because you do just want to stay protected. But I'm still so upset about how this ended, even though the guest was understanding and, you know, she kind of admitted that she shouldn't have forgotten the items in the first place. I just, I feel like this was so unavoidable. And if we just tightened up our communication a little bit with our cleaning team, this wouldn't have had to happen this way. So I feel like I am the Airbnb hole this week. I just feel horrible that I let my guests down, even though it was after checkout time. I... This is just not the service that I like to offer. So I've been super bummed about it and how things ended. There you have it. I'm the Airbnb hole this week. On that note, have a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm going to sign off for today and go start making my famous sweet potatoes that my family will be demanding. My secret ingredient for anyone wondering is I use shredded coconut instead of marshmallows. Trust me on this one. Try it. It is a game changer. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye!